come to the perfect place. I want to bring those who have wronged me to justice, and all those who have wronged me are right here. I will begin with Sir Gregor Clegane, who killed my sister's children, and then raped her with their blood still on his hands, before killing her too. I will be your champion. Well, ladies and gentlemen, Eric is officially Ironborn. And the reason I say that is because he is now on his third podcast of the day. So that makes him an Iron Man, but in terms of this podcast, it makes him Ironborn. Wow. Welcome to everyone listening to our podcast. This is Game of Owns. Boy, do we have a show for you today. Mm-hmm. And welcome back, Eric. Thanks, guys. It's good to be back on this Second episode recorded this week. And welcome back, Panic. Hannah, we just had to invite you back again, you know? <laughs> I know, thank you. Folks are like, where's where's Hannah going? And, uh, well, she's on the show again, so mm-hmm. enjoy. So thank you for you. accepting my uh, Skype request. I appreciate it. <laughs> she's friends with you, too? Oh, yeah, sorry, Eric. It's You're less not special exclusive. now. It's less special. I accepted Micah first. So. <laughs> oh. oh, okay. All right. Yeah. This is good. This is getting places. <laughs> this is heating up. <laughs> That's okay. You know what? You didn't hurt my feelings. I'm Ironborn. Eric was right. This is our second episode of the week. We hope that you enjoyed our Emmy special titled Winning the Emmys. How awesome is it that we were able to name an episode of our podcast that? It beats out Emmy Rock, I think, for how cool a show title can be surrounding the Emmy Awards. It's true. Mm -hmm. Winning is everything. We have been texting uh, leading up uh, to this discussion of this episode, of these chapters. Mm-hmm. Texting, uh, I think, a little bit more excitable than usual. Usually it's exciting, but these two chapters, guys, come on. It's true. This was, we kept like telling people, telling each other where we were at in the book. <laughs> this chapter, oh my God, this part. Yeah, I know, right? This part. Plenty of little surprises here and there about these two chapters. Of course, we're talking about Arya and Tyrion, but it's the first time we saw or see Arya following the Red Wedding. So that's been a long time coming. Um, sort of since we began our read through, this is the first Arya chapter we've gotten to. So mm-hmm. it's kind of nice to catch up with her and see kind of where she's at. And we actually haven't seen her since before season five began. So it's been yeah. sort of an extra moment, not only for us, but for all of you following along. And I just got a thought in my mind uh, when I, I heard you agreeing. So mm-hmm, very podcast ready in the background, Hannah. Uh, you're, you know, obviously you're you're sullied and you've read the books. Yes. Wonderful. So would we, but we're masochists and that's how it is. Now that you're helping us out with the Some of us. (laughs) Since you read these chapters to to come on tonight's episode, what's it like diving back, I guess, in a, I don't want to say in the middle part of the series, but in this part of Storm of Swords after the Red Wedding, sort of as, to me, things are feeling so, uh, you you would expect it to, I don't know. I don't know where I'm just saying it's it's very particular. Things feel spooky almost. I mean, it's it's good. It's nice to be back. It's been a while since I've done a read through and especially, you know, focusing so much time on on the show. It's really nice to be, you know, with in Arya's head and in Tyrion's head. I think that's something that I miss that we miss a lot when we're watching on TV. So, it's good. I mean, this is my Storm of Swords is my favorite of all the books, so I couldn't ask to be 
dropped you into too, the middle huh? of a different one. You too. Yeah, I know. I don't know if that's cliche or whatever, but oh god, no. I mean, I think it's probably for a reason, right? But the the richness really strikes me every time getting into this. And uh, what what you're saying about it being through different points of view in the way that it's not in the show. I think in particular with this Arya chapter. Some of the things she's thinking when the hound is speaking to her. And then the days that go by where they're not speaking, things like that would never show on on the camera. Yeah. And so it's good to be in her head. I mean, I I kind of missed her. Like an old friend. Like an old friend. Mm -hmm. I liked how, uh, Zach, you talked about it being spooky. Yeah, it was. It really is. are spooky. Well, not only the dreams, but just Arya's persona as a whole exactly. as you go throughout the chapter. Yes. It opens with her talking about how hollow she is inside, how she has a hole within her. And, and she really doesn't know what her purpose is now moving forward. She she doesn't really have any family that she can think of. Her her aunt comes up in discussion. She thinks about going to see John at the Wall. There's discussion about her going to be with the Blackfish at River Run. Mm. But she really has no true sense of purpose right now and and, it, and it's very very interesting to be inside of her mind and seeing a very young person go through all, all this you mm-hmm. know, th- these are kind of thoughts that you would expect almost from an adult uh, or from and, no and, one yeah. you know it's, <laughs> well yeah it's, it's a shame but you 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 slowly start to see her transition uh of, of her becoming a much more darker character or at least having shades of darkness within her uh, especially after she decides that it's not worth going back to the twins to try and find out if, if her mother is indeed still alive uh, and, and she has that uh, interaction with the hound. And, and it's very definitive. And I'm sure we're going to talk a little bit more about what happens during that dream. But just that switch in personality for her mm. uh, is is very, very disturbing, I, I would think, as a reader, because you see her now trending off in, in a completely different direction. I like, though, kind of going back to watching it on screen versus reading it in the book is we get to explore what's going on inside our head in a way that we weren't able to before. Because, you know, we see her after the Red Wedding and she's just immediately already kind of has that hardness about her. And, you know, she kills a guy. Yeah. Right. Revenge. And, and so it's kind of I, I like to see this other softer side of her, maybe that we kind of get to see her that emptiness and she's missing her family and she's kind of going through it a little bit more than than we get to see on screen. We see her grieving. I mean, that much is evidenced yeah. by what she does to that poor girl's doll, right? And But there's this darkness of, you know, she she was fixing it. <laughs> she was making that soldier, Sir Soldier, um, appear more like he should because the world's a terrible place that they're mm-hmm. living in. You know, it's it's so deep. That demonstrates, though, how hardened she's become at such a young age that, that she would grab the doll of, of, of another girl that is close in age to her, if not the same age, rip the stuffing out of it and say, this is what a real soldier looks like. This is what I've experienced, what I've seen exactly. in my travels. You know nothing, basically, because <laughs> I, I sorry, I didn't mean to Eldest use that daughter, phrase. You know nothing. That's basically what she's saying, that the soldier is not here to protect you this is what happens to real soldiers in 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 the real world so it's a rude mm-hmm. awakening that she visits upon this girl i mean this girl who is her age and just seems silly to her aria has this very like she sees through it she sees through all of this she hates that this girl is following her around she kind of just wants to be alone with her dreams she kind of is exhibiting some tendencies that a brand had in a way i mean because she's I wouldn't say she's relying fully on the exploits of her wolf, but they are what 
in a way, keep her going, I think, some of these dreams. Because she's in a place where she she doesn't have any control of where she's being taken, necessarily. She You know, it's not even known to her the whole time where she is going, but she's sort of just existing, sometimes in complete silence with the Hound as he sort of formulates his plan. And, and the Hound, too, is having almost like an exact... Yeah. Uh, same sort of emotional turmoil through his, this chapter. And even though we don't get his point of view, it's it's really cool to s- sort of read what his reactions and, and how he's acting are. But Arya does have these dreams that she goes to, and it kind of makes her chapter, which which is sort of a summary. I mean, it's it's time is passing pretty quickly as it goes by, but, you know, it, it just it perforates um, sort of the landscape of what is real, but what might not be anything more than the time it takes to is mourn a loss uh, with these crazy night rangers. And it's just another way of doing wolf dreams that I think is altogether different from what we've seen before. I just wanted to go back to the point of view character of this chapter and, and maybe kind of get your thoughts here too. The fact that this is an Aria chapter, you know, for, don't forget for book readers, and I know we touched on it a little bit earlier, we were left in the chapter following the Red Wedding, not knowing Aria's fate. You know, we have the benefit, obviously, of the television show and knowing that as we you know, left her prior to season five, that she's still alive in season five. But if you're going through and reading the books and, and not having the show to guide you along, you have no reason to think that Arya is still alive, especially in the previous chapter, having seen what happened to Robin Catalan. So, you know, I'll admit I did thumb through pages (laughs) to find out whether or not she was still alive but i'm interested hannah did you do the same thing and and what what was it like knowing that that she's still around oh i absolutely checked to make sure she was still alive i mean i couldn't (laughs) not you know it's like i finished the red wedding and that's kind of one of those scenes that you read and you always remember where you are and i immediately thumbed through to find out if you know, make sure who got out and who didn't. So I totally cheated, but can't help it. Mm. I mean, she's such an important character, you know, and I just, I couldn't sleep at night. After what had just happened to the rest of them. Yeah. It's like, really, this too? Is Axe taking her? Yeah, so I cheated. Yeah, I I don't think I would have been able to forgive George because when I I read those words that Zach just said, it's just like, really, dude, you're going to go there, too? You're going to take her away? We're cleaning out the Starks right now. Yeah, like, have we not been through enough? Like, cut me a break. <laughs> and this is only the third book. How much more is there supposed to be without these? Are we going to have to go this far without them? It's almost that he's keeping her alive, and he doesn't even know what he's going to do with her. Well, that's the best part about this chapter for me. This journey from the twins to what we later find out are them heading toward the Mountains of the Moon. One of my favorite parts of the series so far has been the relationship between the Hound and Arya, and finding more of it in the books. It's just, obviously, the source material eclipses it in every stretch of the imagination, and this is no exception. This chapter, with them sharing their moments, you feel Arya's pain, and you understand how she's, because it's inside of her head, you understand how she's having to feel and sort of let go of her love and her attachment to people that were alive. Uh, she was always traveling to River Run. She says at some point in this chapter, like she was sort of always heading there. And now it's sort of like the definitive release of finding her mother there. And she's feeling this alongside the Hound, who not only is sad and angry because of the life that's led him to where he is, but also because what he his plan with Arya had just been foiled. 
So they're walking away together. And this is an excellent part um, that I, I can't remember the exact quote, but it was something along the lines of Sandor expressing his anger, not completely in relation to her, like, cause they didn't get in many arguments because she didn't speak very much. Right. But when he would chop wood, for example, he would just go into this cold blind rage and chop three times as much as they, as they would need. And yeah. sometimes he would get so tired, he would fall asleep before lighting the fire. <laughs> and that's what she disliked the most. And there's this, will she, won't she aspect of, will she ride away? She thinks about it a lot. Will she kill him? She certainly says she will. But it doesn't quite happen, and it's it's a growing moment. I think it's it's an odd sort of kinship, and it was odd in the show. It was how they needed each other, and especially how they parted ways is so memorable. I think about it often, and of course, I thought about it while we were reading this chapter because so much of what happens in this chapter um, is adapted here and there for, for to show their relationship. They're growing. I guess dependence might be a word on each other. It's it's a little unclear on what exactly they need from each other. Well, if Arya can't build a fire, then she yeah, obviously she can't, needs. Can't be a, I guess I guess she's as good as dead. But they're both going. Them. They're both struggling together. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, absolutely. A large part of this chapter is Arya coming to the realization, not that she didn't always know it, but we're feeling it alongside her, that she's lonely. That it's mm. just it's just gets it getting there. Her brothers and sisters were with her, many and many more of them. This is in reference to her dreaming and why she liked it. Fierce and terrible and hers. They would never leave her. That is her thought. She's running with her pack. They would never leave her. She's thinking about the people that had left her. Hot Pie and Gendry and Anne Guy, the Brotherhood without banners. None of them wanted her around, she thinks. They all wanted to ransom her. Plenty, enough of them did. And I think there's some truth to that, like... Again, with her dreams in this chapter, is she? It's it's always a spiritual experience when warging. Sometimes, though, in fact, most of the time, I think it corresponds to real events. You know, we're meant to believe that there is this wolf pack that she's leading, which is pretty cool. Um, that's going around the countryside. But when she relates it to being her family that is there, I also think of like this afterlife sort of spiritual aspect of. And perhaps it's a familial aspect that the Starks were all, you know, could always do this, that she's sensing other wolves gone by or something. But there's something extra to it, too, that makes her feel at home when she's doing this. It's not her, though. It's Nymeria who's able to locate Catelyn's body and, and pull her from the river. So it's almost through her dire wolf that she's able to get that fulfillment that you're talking about, even though it's not... A, a, a positive sort of fulfillment. It's just fulfillment in knowing closure. what has truly happened. It, yeah, absolutely. It's closure to the events of the Red Wedding, knowing that Catelyn's not being held hostage by Walder Frey to be ransomed back to the Lannisters, that there's really no purpose in her going back to the twins. She, you know, She's a young girl. She's holding on to some hope that these members of her family could still be alive, at least her mother. And this was mentioned before, but she spent so long on this journey to try and get back to her family. And, and every time she gets close, something happens. And, and this just gives a bit of finality to it all. Uh, there There is no more Rob. There is no more Catalan for her to try and seek out. And, you know, f- with, with everything else that happens, she really doesn't have anywhere to turn. You know, the, the mention of Lysa, but Lysa is not her mother. And, and, you know, John comes up as an option later on that's mentioned by her. Uh, but the Hound puts that to rest because he said, you know, we're never going to be able to make it 
uh, past the twins. So basically. many obstacles on the way there. Jeez. And so what? What is this? This poor girl's option at this point, and and that's really now where we start to see her shift and and head down a little bit more uh, of a darkened path. I wanted to let you finish your soliloquy there because it was beautiful, but at some point we're going to have to address the fact that Arya thought that she smelt her mother and then began to warg and then smelt her through Nymeria, and Nymeria padded around the side of a body of water, a river, among tons of bodies that apparently had been dropped and there was cold, dead flesh, ravens squawking. Honestly, we're going to have to read this because mm-hmm. this is too haunting to just skip over and, and, you know, it's too much. I thought you were going to say, I'm going to let you finish, but... <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot to read, but I think I'm just going to go through all of it because it's good. Yeah. Do it. Go for it. <sighs> that night, she went to sleep thinking of her mother, wondering if she should kill the hound in his sleep and rescue Lady Catelyn herself. When she closed her eyes... She saw her mother's face against the back of her eyelids. She's so close, I could almost smell her. And then she could smell her. The scent was faint beneath the other smells, beneath moss and mud and water and the stench of rotting reeds and rotting men. She padded slowly through the soft ground to the river's edge, lapped up a drink, then lifted her head to sniff. The sky was gray and thick with cloud, the river green and full of floating things, Dead men clogged the shallows, some still moving, as the water pushed them, others washed up on the banks. Let me just take a moment to express how many bodies there would need to be to clog up such a body of water. Her brothers and sisters swarmed around them, tearing at the rich, ripe flesh. The crows were there, too, screaming at the wolves and filling the air with feathers. Their blood was hotter, and one of her sisters had snapped at one as it took flight and caught it by the wing. It made her want to crow herself. She wanted to taste the blood, to hear the bones crunch between her teeth, to fill her belly with warm flesh instead of cold. She was hungry, and the meat was all around, but she knew she could not eat. The scent was stronger now. She pricked her ears up and listened to the grumbles of her pack, the shriek of angry crows, the whir of wings and sound of running water. Somewhere far off, she could hear horses and the calls of living men, but they were not what mattered. Only the scent mattered. She sniffed the air again. There it was, and now she saw it too, something pale and white drifting down the river, turning where it brushed against a snag. The reeds bowed down before it. She splashed noisily through the shallows and threw herself into the deeper water, her legs churning. The current was strong, but she was stronger. She swam, following her nose. The river's smells were rich and wet, but those were not the smells that pulled her. She paddled after the sharp red whisper of cold blood, the sweet, cloying stench of death. She chased them as she had often chased a red deer through the trees, and in the end, she ran them down and her jaw closed around a pale white arm. She shook it to make it move, but there was only death and blood in her mouth. By now she was tiring, and it was all she could do to pull the body back to shore. As she dragged it up the muddy bank, one of her little brothers came prowling, his tongue lolling from his mouth. She had to snarl to drive him off, or else he would have fed. Only then did she stop to shake the water from her fur. The white thing lay face down in the mud, her dead flesh wrinkled and pale, cold blood trickling from her throat. Rise, she thought. Rise and eat, and run with us. And this is the moment where she hears people coming, and she decides, all right, well, maybe I've done what I need to do. 
What did she say? She abandoned a cold white prize in the mud where she had dragged it and ran and felt no shame. Some it's heavy crazy. stuff, guys. Yeah. She's she's beckoning her mother to get up. She just found the body of Catelyn of Stark in a dream. It's insane. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's not only the fact that she's in a wolf's head right now. We'll let that, we'll put that aside because we're in a storm of swords and everyone knows the universe we're in now that you've listened to this. You, you're listening. You understand where we are. But yeah. let's just add another level of mysticism to the thing where she does smell Catelyn and she does find Catelyn in a river. I mean, it was, it was mentioned. People talk about, uh, Tyrion hears about it too, how Catelyn's body was thrown in the river. Now we know why that's important or now we kind of see what George was doing there. Actually having us find that body, it's crazy. And having Arya find it. even And how so. long she spent looking for her and then to find her this way. After so yeah. long, like Micah said, this is, this is closure for Arya. Following this incident, the morning comes. Obviously she wakes up and it says that she woke up before the Hound this time. And I believe that that is a way to reference earlier in the chapter how Arya was talking about her, her sort of just lethargic demeanor, how she found herself wanting to sleep through the entire day, not to mention sleeping in. And sometimes he just had to wake her up, shake her up, like, all right, let's go now. But now I feel like there's comfort and solace in who she is and what's happening because she wakes before Sandor and you know she's, she's, she's the one getting to move. And they're eating breakfast and he begins to ask her, very sort of unlike his character, you know, because she'd been pitching beforehand. We kind of skipped over it, but she was basically like, let's go back because this plight isn't going to work. Let's go back and see if we can rescue my mother because, okay, they killed Rob, but there's a chance she's still held hostage. And he shrugs it off. But here he, he says, this thing about your mother. And then she replies, it doesn't matter. I know she's dead. I saw her in a dream. And that's it. And it's good enough. And it just... The matter's over. I mean, what was he going to say? What was he? What what would have been the next few words out of his mouth if he, if she hadn't said that? I would have liked to have known what he was going to say. Yeah. That I'm sure I'll never let go of because I want to know more about what he's thinking. Mm-hmm. But she put the it to mind rest. of Sandor. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it it is such a such a heartbreaking scene, though. We've talked about the closure element of it, but the fact that Arya goes through this and then immediately that next morning flips the switch and it seems like she's now in a different kind of mode yeah you know we we see her let go of the people who have left her we see her let go of her mom and then we see her kind of let go of herself you know she talks about how she's no one's daughter you know she's not Arya, not weasel not nan she kind of goes through all these people that she's been and then now she's just some girl. That's really fitting for their stuff in the future, wouldn't you yeah. say? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. That's all I could think about was what was to come for her. And then she rips that girl's doll apart. So oh. it's <laughs> we're done with being nostalgic, I guess. Yeah, no, it's over now. It's it's great that we had that other, the, the girl as a device, the farmer's daughter, just to feel another person at her age level and, and how things could have been if she hadn't have gone through what she had gone through. She could have maybe been running around and maybe had a doll for herself, even though we know that that's not the kind of person she was. It reminds you how young she is. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. It reminds me of that dream sequence in uh, Terminator 2 where Sarah Connor's like playing on the jungle gym with her son, like John, and like they don't know that the judgment day is coming, but then they're at the playground when the bomb goes off and it's just like, oh, it's that insight into what would have happened and like innocence is 
nice and you can sort of be nostalgic about it, but isn't Arya better off for knowing how the world is that w- the way it truly is? And is it useful what she's doing to this girl's doll? Do you think the girl's really going to take that out of it? Or is she just going to be really upset and stop following Arya around? I think she's just going to be upset. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know that there's much to, to necessarily read into there outside of what we've already discussed, but uh, I just wanted to bring up too this idea of Nymeria being out there. You know, we haven't seen her really since uh, the very first book, and we've heard whispers of this wolf pack that's roaming around out there. And and when I was reading through this, and and Zach just read the passage before, where you have this epic carnage that's going on uh, in this river, right? These these bodies upon bodies floating in the river the crows you know feasting on them yet here's this this lone wolf pack that's out there somehow still surviving and i i thought it was really representative of aria too like despite everything that's going on she's sort of this lone wolf that's out there doing what she needs to do in order to survive and and hopefully one day she's able to get a pack of her own and and come back and and get some vengeance for everything that's happened at this point we know after all that we've been through that that she's in the head of nymeria and it's less of a dream right because for example this vision is so specific it's not like when jamie was thinking to himself when he was sleeping and he saw casterly rock from below and brianne was there and there was people you know what i mean like just none of those people were actually there this is very specific like I like how George is putting those clean lines there to sort of, sort of show us uh, if you, if you're opening your mind enough to look into it, what's real and what isn't. Mm-hmm. Which dreams are figurative versus which dreams are actually taking place. I think it will not only depends on the person, but the context clues. You got to kind of feel around a little bit. But then why not ask the question, why didn't Nymeria stay? Why not defend Catalan's body? Who knows who these men are, what they're going to do? After going through everything that she went through to pull Catalan from the river, she's just going to leave her there? I mean, she scares off another wolf that tries to chow down, but we don't have any context to who these men are. It's mentioned that wolves flee before men. There was something that Arya said early in the chapter. There's a few things that she said. It made me feel like when she does come back, Micah, because clearly she will, right? I know that she's out east. She's working. She's training. She's lost her eyesight, Who's apparently. working with an in, E? <laughs> in the show. But she's she's going to come back west, I feel. All right? I think it all ends in Westeros at some point. Right, guys? Like Probably. A few things that she said that made me believe if she and Sansa do meet, it, it, I'm not sure if it's going to be on the best terms. I just feel like we've been getting little tidbits. And I remember how they left each other. And what if, what if Arya sees Sansa, let's say... Sansa's reunited with Baelish at some point. Like, what if Arya finds Sansa with people that she thinks to be bad people and just assumes that she took the same path that this horse took? You know, this horse that she found that she named Craven, who fleed from the twins that she just does not respect at all. It just and it made me think of Sansa in a way. Not that not that she is Craven. We we understand her situation, but will will Arya not having the context? That's kind of what we see peppered throughout the story, right? When they when they don't have the context, like Brienne and Podrick meeting with the Hound and Arya, 
if we don't have the context, then okay. Well, we don't know if your story's sound. We don't understand where you're coming from. Too much is at stake. Let's battle or let's be enemies rather than hearing the whole story. I feel like maybe Sansa will be considered. And it just made me think of it because she had just left King's Landing in the way that she had just left King's Landing. And that was only a few chapters back. And I felt like it was just a very brutal, straightforward reference to the fact that uh, that she got this horse in this way, that the horse escaped what was happening. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I hadn't made that connection between Craven and, and Sansa. I think, for me, it's hard to imagine one Stark seeing another Stark still alive and not going, oh my god, you're a fellow Stark and you're still alive, I love you. But Arya's becoming no one. Yeah, she is. Yeah. And I think that process will probably be different than it was in the show, where she's hell-bent on revenge and like has trouble becoming no one because already in this chapter as Mike said you have these sort of interior statements from her about this hole that's in her about how she is sort of losing her identity as they wander aimlessly I mean am I bringing up something that's not interesting enough to talk about I just felt like there were some really long-term clues here that I just found fascinating I would say go ahead I would think that you're right I mean you look at Arya's version of what it means to be brave is so different than what Sansa's version of what it would mean to be brave is. And to kind of see those two come together um, would be interesting. And it's just sad because if this reality ends up happening, it would be because of misinformation. It'd be because the whole context isn't told on all sides, which, like I said, is is basically what plagues so much of the relationships and interactions in the story is the fact that we can't communicate everything all at once and you don't know everything all at once. We see it in the next chapter when Tyrion is at his trial. It's just you want to pound your fist so much when Bran is a few yards away from Jon and if they could just have a conversation, so much could be settled. The story could be moved so much forward. Just like I said, judging by the proximity it was to the way Sansa escaped King's Landing, I just have this fear that if she rises and, and, and does something worthwhile in the future, which I believe that she will in the story, and Arya is also rising and becoming worthwhile in her own regard, this is going to be a dangerous conclusion. Yeah. Because we know what kind of relationship they had early in the story. We know that it was tenuous. We've seen what was set up in the feast chamber in Winterfell. Yeah. I'm afraid, guys. Go back to uh, really everything that happened at Baylor and, and Arya watching as Sansa stood up on the dais exactly. and its head was removed from his body. And and I think if you use the show as as, as context, Zach, you had mentioned you know, misinformation or, or poor communication. She's married into the Boltons, the, the family who is extremely complicit in the murder of Robin Catelyn. So... What is Arya to think of that if if she doesn't have the full context of what's going on as she makes her way, should she make her way, back to Westeros? I hate to even bring the the show into it because I feel that George has so adeptly, just in this third book, I don't even know what's to come afterward. And I'm sure if this is a theme that he's hitting on, that it'll it'll be present in Sansa's story and Arya's story as well. But uh, yeah, I see what you're saying. And if, if that's something that the showrunners are, are really building up strongly because I've been told that that's not, I mean, by the whole world shouting that that isn't anything to do with Sansa's actual canon storyline. That's just what the adaptation is doing. Uh, then that's really interesting because that would mean that there's going to be a large payoff with all this. Well, the flip side is you know, going uh, at least in as far as we are right now in the books, she's with Baelish, who's another person who 
has had a hand in everything that's gone down in King's Landing as well. Right, and formerly so, married to the Lannisters, which also are the family that killed Ned. So there's there's no good side for Sansa to be on right now in the eyes of Arya. Or this could just be farce. I could be reading into this from this chapter far too much, and they could have a conversation, and it would all be well. I would just hate for us to see that. What if, what was set up as sibling rivalry at the beginning turned to something much more serious when they become much more dangerous players? I don't think it's a far stretch at all. And and I think if if you've happened to see George's original manuscript, that your lo- your line of thinking is is very much you know on point in terms of the relationship here and and where it could potentially go. How do I get my hands on one of those? <laughs> <laughs> I, I I find that fascinating that idea i just think well what if you know what i mean because like it was so playful in the beginning what if it's like serious later the last thing we need in this world is starks against starks we're gonna be so excited for them to like the first starks to finally get back together and meet and they're just gonna (laughs) go at each other it's gonna be so painful (sighs) well we forgot to mention not that we necessarily forgot but we were speaking that they sort of joined a farming community just outside the mountains and the moon and uh, during the conversations have basically been warded off of heading along a path toward the Vale. It's snowing, right? It the is. weather's going to be an issue for well, them. Well, that's it, yeah. the weather. That's all they have to deal with. Not all of the, the hill and dangerous wild people that like Tyrion Timid's has. Back. Timid's back. Yeah. Timid is back. But it, it really just serves to dissuade the Hound, right? He's like, oh, we'll go to River Run then. And it's just like, again, that's the point where Arya's like, I've been going to River Run all my life. Um these last few years, it feels like it just um, they have no real goal. And it really reminds me of what it must be like for most of the people in Westeros um, who aren't highborn sitting in castles, you know, like wandering the countryside, encountering all this war and danger that that Arya and the Hound are. It's fairly common at this point in in this age, in this year to have that. And the way that they're so easily just passing through for a little bit here, a little bit there in this chapter just kind of goes to show what the majority of civilization has been reduced to since the War of the Five Kings started. They've been reduced to allowing Joffrey's dog to live in their village, even though they knew who he was immediately. Yeah. I felt kind of bad for for him for half a second there because he was just like, maybe we'll stay here for a little while, like take a little break, rest up. And mm-hmm. they're like, no, 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 we know who you are. Get out of here. I loved it. I obviously felt bad for him. It was terrible. But I think we get, we got a tweet about it. I remember reading at some point, someone said that the village elder owned the hound, which makes no sense. He didn't, you know, respond <laughs> negatively. He took his money and, and went. Yeah. He was yeah. Like, All right. Do you think the hound has a plan at the end of the chapter, though, getting into what he says about his brother? Is there some kind of concrete direction that they're going to be headed in now, do you think? See, I I wasn't sure about that. For all of the detail uh, that this chapter has and for all the directions that they're deciding to go or talking about possibly going, it seems like finally, just like Arya's sort of decided where she wants to be, the Hound may or may not have some more clarity. They're not going to respond to us, Eric. They know the answer to your question. <laughs> I keep trying. I just keep trying. You know, we do we do often draw parallels between the chapters that we pick for these episodes and the uh the mountain being mentioned at the end of the Arya chapter and of course throughout the Tyrion chapter is um 
pretty special. Well, uh, <laughs> we have the fallout here from the Red Wedding for Arya. Now we uh, had the benefit of another similarity between these two chapters. Tyrion, we were with him for the first time since Joffrey's wedding. And uh, man's in a pickle. Just a little. Yeah, it's safe to say that Tyrion's in a bind, but it could be worse. He is of the royal family. So he still gets fed. He gets fed. He's getting he often uh, frequent visits uh, by his uncle, right? Kevin, not the worst uncle a boy's ever had or a man's no. ever had. Kevin was quite fair in this chapter. <laughs> he was quite gallant, if I'm allowed to say that. Kevin Lannister, uh, not disappointing. No, he's he's. I I liked reading about Kevin, and like he totally thinks that Tyrion did it, but that doesn't stop him from, again, sort of continuing to press the issue of Tyrion needing witnesses for his trial and I don't know he still gives him the time of the day even though all things considered he does think him to be guilty there's something to be said for that and it's as we find out throughout the you know throughout the chapter that Kevin is on a different track than say that of uh, Tyrion in terms of like he's not doing this for the for the glory of his family he might be doing it because he's sort of a mediator of sorts uh, between the two or something but it's it's not the thing with kevin is it's a little different than the other lannisters right it's sort of house pride but it's like also this admiration for his brother and this desire to see things right he's in it for the love of the game yeah maybe <laughs> <laughs> yep. i'm gonna go with that <laughs> about all of this that uh that's always kind of rubbed me the wrong way is is that there's no evidence that Tyrion has done anything wrong well, it's all hearsay. I, I, it is, and, and and granted, they don't have uh, CSI King's Landing, but mm, not yet. I, I just find it hard to believe, knowing everybody that has been invited to this wedding, and and there's that great exchange between Tyrion and Oberyn towards the end of the chapter, where he basically asks Oberyn if he was responsible for Joffrey's death, mm. and Oberyn gives this little smirk or smile. But it's true. You you think of all of the people who are here that would want to do harm to the Lannisters, the Martells are probably at the top of the list. Oh, yeah. Yet it's Tyrion. Tyrion. And we all know the the the, the not even the love-hate, the hate-hate relationship between him and Cersei. But the, what I go back to is I, I've always thought this to be just a pure pure indictment of Tyrion. There, there's no there's no evidence. There's there's no real Aside from the fact that we know he didn't like Joffrey, but look, people don't like each other, period, right? It, that's not enough to convict them of murder. So to me, I, I've always had a problem with how Tyrion has been put on trial. Tywin is just unrelenting in this chapter. Absolutely. Unrelenting. Yeah. And, and is, you know, in, in a way, I, I don't even know that he considers him guilty. He just wants to be rid of him, you know. Tyrion's the son he's always not wanted. So this gives him a perfect out. And and Cersei loves every minute of it. We don't get to see any of Jaime at all in this chapter, mm. which I found interesting. But uh, does anybody else feel the same way? I, I kind of disagree with you a little bit. I think that I think that I'm biased towards Tyrion because we're in his head. But I mean, you know, Kevin kind of talks about public opinion being swayed against him. I think it's more difficult for, at least for me, to kind of get outside my head because I just am rooting for Tyrion all the time. But he's been kind of throwing his weight around a little bit. And 
not not that he deserved it, but I feel like it kind of he kind of had it coming a little bit. He, yeah, I mean, there's yeah. tons of evidence stacked against him. You know, he yeah. has the means, he has the motivation, he has the opportunity to. So I feel like, of course, he's going to be a prime suspect, whether or not he deserves it. But I, I feel like, I feel like people don't have a great opinion of him already, and he knew that, and so here he is. But does aren't there other people that would have motive as well? Other people, but did they have Joffrey's cup directly in their lap when this right. was happening? But whose cup was it? Who you know? It came from the Tyrells, the the cup that he is drinking from. You know, so why isn't it just as as likely that one of them is responsible? Well, because Marjorie was drinking from that cup as well. It didn't appear to be a slow thing. It, you know, it basically happened if you were there at the wedding after I wasn't. Well, <laughs> didn't, it was, didn't get it was a great time. I didn't get the invite. It was a blast. Oh, man. But it basically happened directly after, you know, Joffrey had been in his proximity where he'd been dump, dumping on, on on his head and he was picking it up off the ground and it was sitting on the table, like the, it says in the chapter, basically in Sansa's lap. And added to the fact that he's married to Sansa, the person that, you know, has publicly been seen. There, like Hannah said, there's so much stacked up against him, not to mention just the entire city. Imagine this is a place where Fox News and other things exist and they're setting the mood of not only the hierarchy but also the people that live in the city. And the mood is that Tyrion is a bad person and not a lot of people respect the fact that he's done anything good at all. And it doesn't help that he's got a big facial wound and that he's already so different than everyone. Add in this happening directly in his proximity, it's a rough situation, guys. It would have made a great episode of Serial. It, <laughs> it it is kind of like the show, right? Where he says, "I'm on trial for being a dwarf." Um, you know, you you get this question of, does Tywin really believe he did it? And if not, what's Tywin doing to actually, you know, while this trial is going, what's he doing to uh, sort out who actually did kill Joffrey? Because no matter what happens with Tyrion, you have this issue where the real killer is does he care? He's getting away. I mean, does he care? I. I'm not sure. I think you should because if somebody is capable no, of but killing a king, any king, doesn't matter who, if somebody's that capable, you should know who they are. You should know the enemy. And I think But that- if you go back to the Jamie chapter, mm-hmm. he very much has a plan in place. You know, he he knows what he wants to do. He likes the idea of being able to mold Tommen in into his mm-hmm. own liking. He knows what he wants to do with his family, but it doesn't necessarily protect his family against future threats. The same person who did it this time can do it again, and I think it would be intelligent to start Mm -hmm. figuring that out. Well, if I do step away from sort of playing the devil's advocate there, I I do agree with what Hannah said. And I think the show did a great job of portraying how Tyrion has kind of stepped on his own foot, got his tongue tied a couple times in, Mm -hmm. in terms of his being so outwardly spoken, not really always thinking through what it is that he's going to say. It actually happens a couple times when he's on trial in this chapter right. uh, where he you get that internal monologue where he basically says, damn it, I shouldn't have done that. Damn it, I shouldn't have done that again. Yeah, it's all over this chapter. And And as you go through the list of witnesses that Cersei has provided to give argument against Tyrion, you're reminded, and again, I, I do think the show did a good job of this, of the things that he's done in in public, the things that he said, 
against Joffrey and against Cersei. And this is all coming back to bite him, despite how witty and how funny he is at times. I think he has put himself um, in this position, and he was he was the perfect scapegoat. He was the per- perfect. perfect person to set up for something like this. And how noble do you get to look if you're the hand of the king and you're still putting your son on trial because he clearly is guilty? How noble is that? If he's the one that's guilty, that he gets such a rigorous treatment that he doesn't get treated better than anyone else. It's just adding to the overall formula that Tywin Lannister's been building all of these years. Mm-hmm. There's a great paragraph about that uh, when Kevin is speaking to, to Tyrion Absolutely. about Tywin. I was thinking of reading it. I think you should. To me, it's mm-hmm. it came out of nowhere. Yeah, and I've I, ha- I haven't heard a better defense of Tywin Lannister before, and I probably won't hear one since his brother ever again. Yeah, his brother truly <laughs> knows the guy, and uh, it, it it may even it even made Tyrion think in this chapter. Yeah, and it may make all of you think. You are my brother's son, and Tyrion replied, "You might remind him of that." And then Kevin replied. Do you think he would allow you to take the black if you were not his own blood and Joanna's? Tywin seems a hard man to you, I know, but he's no harder than he's had to be. Our own father was gentle and amiable, but so weak his bannermen mocked him in their cups. Some saw fit to defy him openly. Other lords borrowed our gold and never troubled to repay it. At court they japed of toothless lions. Even his mistress stole from him. A woman scarcely one step above a whore, and she helped herself to my mother's jewels. It fell to Tywin to restore House Lannister to its proper place, just as it fell to him to rule this realm, when he was no more than twenty. He bore that heavy burden for twenty years, and all it earned him was a mad king's envy. Instead of the honor he deserved, he was made to suffer slights beyond count, yet he gave the seven kingdoms peace, plenty, and justice. He is a just man. You would be wise to trust him. That really makes you think. I love how it's like Tyrion blinked in astonishment. <laughs> he just doesn't. He doesn't know what to say. Own. It's lonely at the top. Aw. All of it's accurate, fine, and well, but we know that Tywin has this unreasonable dislike for Tyrion. Mm. A lot of it has to do with the kind of person Tyrion's been. A lot of it has to do with the way he came into this world, and a lot of it has to do for what he is. But for now, they're on display. So it amplifies all of the emotions that are surrounding the situation. And I just don't think that Kevin's advice here to trust Tywin is good enough. If they were to give Tyrion passage, which we've, again, we sort of skipped over it because this conversation has taken us in a lot of different places. But uh, as the chapter goes on, Kevin does visit Tyrion's cell back and forth. And at one point basically tells Tyrion, you should consider confessing. And keep in mind, Kevin thinks that Tyrion's guilty. He says, you should consider confessing. And if you do confess, your father will judge you less harshly, and he'll allow you to go to the wall and take the black. So this is Tyrion questioning that. So we have to ask ourselves, would Tywin Lannister do this? And if he does do this, is this Tywin showing some form of fatherly love? Whether he believes Tyrion did it or not, they're putting it to rest. Maybe he knows it's the Tyrells, and he's allowing Tyrion to take the fall, which sucks, but it's all part of the chess game he's been playing for all of these years, right? Why would he mm. stop that right now for the son that disappoints him so much? But rather than letting Mace Tyrell 
give Cersei his head, he would send him to the wall where he would know he would still be alive. So is that him honoring Tyrion in a way while still keeping his game up? Like, is he doing the calculations so quickly in his head that he's come out with what would seem to be the perfect conclusion? I, I think so. I, I think it goes back to him being such a strategist. And, and, and his focus really is on his family remaining in power. It, 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 it doesn't really matter to him what happens to his children. I, I, I firmly believe that. I, I think he sees them as nothing more than moving pieces. And that's sad in a way, too. It, it, it really, really is. And, and Tyrion, he still thinks everything is a joke because you know, when Kevin mentions him having the option to take the black, his response is, oh, well, we all remember how well that went for Ned Stark. Right. So mm-hmm. it's like he still doesn't get the gravity of the situation. He still can't detach himself from you know, shooting himself in the foot. That's fair, though, what happened to Ned. It's a valid point. I'm not saying it isn't, but it's like it's it's almost you can see that coming across in, in his very sarcastic mm-hmm, Tyrion like persona. It's hard to, to really get a read on Tywin. You'd love to get a point of view chapter for him and, and see exactly what is going on in his mind as all of this is going on. This is the chapter that I've been looking forward to for such a long time. I didn't know that it was going to come in this way where Tyrion would have the face-to-face with Oberyn in his cell, but also it would be the chapter that holds three-quarters of his trial. This is an incredible chapter. It is. There's so much here. There's so much substance. I feel like we could have based an entire episode around how full this is. Yeah, and... and don't forget Bronn. Yeah, absolutely. And what would seem to be their last meeting, which was riddled with sadness for me, and I'm glad that there are some beautiful pictures to take away from the film adaptation. My, dog, <laughs> my, dog's, my dog's having a dream. He's barking. I think he's warging into... You. Whoa. What has he got to say? You just don't know it. He's recording this podcast right now. <laughs> he's barking. It's been strike the whole time. I'm sorry. This is strange. There's just so much in this chapter that I just, I really loved. I loved when Tyrion was entering the courtroom and Kevin and, and the base, the, the guards come and get him, but it's not the king's guard that would escort him because they're actually standing as witnesses against him. Yeah. Yeah. The enters the throne room and this is where they're holding the trial. The same room that Joffrey died in. Yeah. And then remember, this is the throne room that has the, the throne that's like from our New York Comic Con poster. I mean, it's, it's a dangerous, big, faded place with lots of history. Let's march Tyrion in front of all of these people, all of this nobility, and let's sit here and berate him publicly for something he did not do. Yeah, it's, it goes back to what I said before. It's, a, it's just such an unfair situation for him to be in because there's really no way for him to get out of it. Mm-hmm. it, it, it the, the cards are so much stacked against him right. in this from top to bottom it anything that you read about in this chapter even with Braun, right it's he's already been taken care of in that sense he's been out he's been outmaneuvered by cersei yeah three three steps to one on on cersei doing everything i mean it, it's it's uh it's interesting there's a lack of um surprise factor in Tyrion contemplating he he's shown asking Sir Kevin about you know am i entitled to a trial by combat that's kind of his plan from from day 1 but but Cersei 
stops that she sees you know ahead of that and is 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 so ahead of the game um in buying off braun in basically i mean choosing gregor that's all known that's all known from from step one that if Tyrion does go by way of trial by combat it's not going to be pleasant at all and she's really she's so blind with her rage for for Tyrion here and it's it's again going back to what Oberyn says at the end of the chapter is like well if it weren't for her accusation it might i mean it just as easily might be me in this in this chamber because Cersei was so sure or blood bloodthirsty for for Tyrion's head that she has gone to great she's continued to go through great lengths to make sure that he cannot escape and that was one thing that this chapter really laid in even more than the show because there are far more witnesses uh, that are coming up all saying the same thing, and it just makes it seem even more dire. Everything is being done to prevent Tyrion from possibly having any slim chance of succeeding uh, at, at being proven innocent. And you mentioned Braun, you mentioned Gregor Clegane. It's just a massive chess game, right? All these witnesses, she starts with the more honorable ones and works her way through to even common folk that probably have zero credit normally in the eyes of somebody like Tywin Lannister. Uh, it, it, it's just an, an unbelievable piece that that's being that, that we're, that we're bearing witness to. And, and, and even Tyrion not having a lot of time to prep for his trial. Right. And, and we know Cersei has been hard at work. We know maybe even Tywin has been hard at work here. We, we have no idea uh, in terms of putting all these witnesses together, getting everything organized. And meanwhile, Tyrion is just locked up in his, his cell here and and can't really come up with one person he can think of yeah. to possibly come and and testify for him with the exception of of Varys and and then we learn that Varys is going to be testifying against him so <laughs> it's just it's tough to watch Tyrion go through yeah. this it's a defeat man and and I like that we're in his head for it you know cuz we're kind of going through it with them you know and yeah. that's why what makes George R R Martin such a great writer is you feel it you know, you're we're kind of trapped up there with him, and all these different things are being revealed to us at the same time they are to him. And you know, this trial just all of a sudden happens, and you're like, "Wait, what?" I wasn't ready so, yet. Yeah, I, I thought Wait, we had some more time. All I've family. managed was to write down Sansa's name on the sheet of paper, and you guys can't even find her. Could we possibly stay this off for another yeah. day <laughs> or two, please? Yeah, the Sansa thing is ate me up a lot at the beginning too, because he's he's angry with her for deserting him he thinks she for basically like forsook her forsaken her vows like he thinks it must have been her who who basically poisoned him and and for leaving him out to dry here is is kind of he's not appreciative at all he definitely says at one point that there's no way that if it was Sansa she could have acted alone right one thing I I did like about Tyrion in, in terms of being inside of his mind here is he starts to think through how he could possibly spin this in his own favor. And he brought up something that we've heard a number of times in the books, and that is that the Tyrells and the Martells do not really like each other. Right. So it is sort of his internal monologue. He asks himself the question, is there a way that I can use this to my advantage? And we, we, we learn later in the chapter, Mace has all but made up his mind. Uh, he's, Cersei's man through and through, but Oberyn is a whole nother story, and and I know we'll we'll talk more about him and and the interaction between those two when he shows up. But the fact that Tyrion, with everything that's going on, still has a clear enough mind to be able to to start to think through 
how he could possibly outmaneuver Cersei a little bit in this sense. Mm. I just think speaks to how much of, of an intellectual person he is. Well, I mean, he, he kind of does have the answer handed to him. It's 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 fun to see somebody who is of similar intellect in Oberyn uh, also be working towards achieving his goal, even as a you know member of this trial, um, as a, as a as a judge of this trial, seeing how he can get to what he really wants, which is uh, which is the mountain, um, and and having so having Tyrion go into the trial thinking, how can I use this um, this uneasy relationship between the Tyrells and the Martells, and then you get the story at the end from Oberyn about how the Tyrells handled Dorne in the past and how and sort of why they don't like each other but that's also justification for why uh, Oberyn is going to be Tyrion's champion because he doesn't like any of them he doesn't like the Lannisters or the Tyrells and it's it goes back to sort of what Micah was saying earlier how you know how come this guy isn't being and and Oberyn says it himself how come I'm not being if it wasn't you yeah uh, on the stand that I'm judging you'd be on the stand judging me because I'm the red viper of Dorne I'm known for being such a good poisoner and this 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 boy was clearly poisoned so I was just fascinating uh how Oberyn is just kind of jovial and just kind of sitting back and uh I, when the, the the first uh, session of the court, because they meet a few times over the course of a few days, because this takes a while, obviously. After the the beginning like procession, the ceremony has begun, and Tyrion's basically asked, "Hey, did you do it?" And he goes, "No." Uh, Oberyn's like, "Oh, great, that's settled." <laughs> he just has a lot of swagger uh, permeating that's through his lines, you know. Yeah, that's a relief right through. It's just beautiful. Both of them are there for moments of comic relief, but then you also have to remember how grave the circumstances are here, and that they're probably not. They're probably the only two that would get a good chuckle out of it, but the rest of the people there are pretty stern and pretty serious. I wonder why he didn't say, and this is right after the High Septon began the prayer uh, the, the first day, I wonder why Tyrion didn't say to Lord Tyrell when he asks, did Sansa Stark do it? Why didn't he say something like, I'm not sure, because we never spoke. We never had intimate relations. We just didn't have that close of a relationship. But he remains true to his vows, obviously, and... Uh, I think once again shows us that the honorable approach isn't what necessarily gets you ahead in the Game of Thrones. He says the gods killed Joffrey. He choked on his pigeon pie. That damn pigeon pie. You would blame the bakers, Lord Tyrell says. <laughs> <laughs> of course, Mace would say that. <sighs> he sang it to him. But then, but then we really get into the meat of it, right? With 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 the trial itself and all these witnesses that are being brought against Tyrion. And we mentioned earlier how the first one, Sir Bell and Swan. Is, is complimentary of Tyrion, and then Tyrion starts to grasp what's going on. There's, there's again that interior monologue of, she began with a man known to be honest, he's referring to Cersei, uh, and, and milked him for all he would give. Every witness to follow will tell a worse tale until I seem as bad as Mager the Cruel and Eris the Mad together with a pinch of egg and the unworthy for spice. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. he's right. That's exactly what happens, at least on this day, uh, as they go through. Every person that's called up tells a worse and, and in many cases false account mm. of, of of what Tyrion has done and, and he can't even defend himself that was something else i didn't can't like speak yeah yeah what, what's up with that but what what would he say you're right what's he you're done right. for his family to treat him this way honestly he is love for his family we see inside his head we honestly know that that Tyrion would never do this but it's just like 
that love is not returned. That love is not shared by by anyone other than Jamie, possibly. And where is Jamie in this chapter? You know, it's 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 kind of a question because it's it's amazing reading every little nuance here about how much Cersei has won this thing already, and how Tywin doesn't even directly approach Tyrion. He can't, and it, you know, Kevin is relaying this information. It's so cold. It's so distant, and it's not what Tyrion deserves for actually having actually had nothing to do with. Uh, Joffrey's death. Well, they think he killed the king. That's why yeah. he's being treated this way. Yeah. It's it's just a sad state of affairs too and I and I know we've mentioned this on another episode in reference to the king's guard that the only reason why some of these people are being able to serve testify, on the king's guard. <laughs> well, no, well, no, the reason they're being able to testify and have any merit to their claim whatsoever is because they're members of the king's guard, but aside from Sir Bale and Swan, I mean, who do you have? Uh, you know, it's 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 pretty slim pickings and and pretty lackluster people, in my opinion. And a lot of the time, the stuff that they're quoting, like when they reference Tyrion slapping Joffrey when the riot broke out in King's Landing, and Sansa was almost taken, and Lawless ended up being taken. That was directly referenced. It just doesn't help. On top of all these other things, the fact that in his trial they're able to quote stuff that is real like defying the king several times doesn't help his case no and then the next day it's the maesters including one big douche of a grand maester who comes to testify against him <laughs> well you should not have sent me to the cells you know like he definitely punishes Tyrion. right but this is a, another perfect example going back to what Hannah said really at the top of the chapter about Tyrion putting himself in these types of situations, right? What yeah. he did to Pycelle is now coming back to bite him right. in the ass. Mm-hmm. I think I think there's some uh, validity to Baelish's strategy in all of this, which is that you strike and you strike fully. You know, Pycelle was left alive, basically given the time and the means to eventually enact revenge on Tyrion in this form. Tyrion had some sort of measure of humanity or or heart that meant that Pycelle was not killed immediately um, for being his sister's spy and instead, you know, imprisoned. But Cersei's brought him back and now it's bitten him in the ass. So there yeah. there might be some wisdom after all into in Baelish's way of doing things. No, that's that's a very good observation. I think that that's what George stresses so much in the story, which is, like I said earlier, if you have a shred of honor to you and you're applying that to your decisions in such a dangerous place, playing such a dangerous game, especially at high stakes at court. Like, for example, what happened to Ned? Uh, it could bite you in the ass. And if you look at the success of what Baelish has done, it's been because, like you said, Eric, he doesn't make soft decisions. He strikes completely. Or he doesn't strike at all. And Tyrion's made a lot of strikes against people like Pycelle. He's struck the king in front of people that are against him right now in an official capacity at trial. And this is a presentation for all of the bad stuff that Tyrion's done. Absolutely. And, and and probably the person who gives the most damning evidence against Tyrion is Varys. And I, and I think that makes it even mm-hmm. worse. Like, you, you were starting to like this bit of bromance that was going on between <laughs> the two of them. And then, you know, you basically have a person now who's testifying against him who has all his I's dotted, all his T's crossed, 
you know, opens his little ledger. He's got dates, times, people, place, and and of course, many people are are a bit shocked at at how Varus would know. And, and basically, Varus says that it's his business to know. That's that's why he is in the position that he's in. And that to me was just so damning for Tyrion. I love how Tyrion's like, "How do I question a, a little bird?" He brings them bird food, and uh, you know, walk up to it, and slowly enough, very slowly, <laughs> we learn that there is one more witness to come on the following day, and we never, we never get there though, uh, because the chapter ends before that. But I think we all know <laughs> who that's going to be. It's gonna hurt. It it's- is going, yeah. It's going to hurt. This was already so painful, especially after Varys came out and did what he did. After all that has been built up, he came out powdered, primped, smelling of rose water, and just destroyed Tyrion in front of gods and men in the throne room of the capital of the Seven Kingdoms. And if we thought that there was a chance, well, first off, we were wrong. We haven't been paying attention if we thought that there was a chance. But if if any of you did, uh, no. If you were reading for the first time, uh, I don't know, like, what did you guys think when you were reading this? When Tyrion was on trial, like, did you see him coming out of this without a scratch? Or did you think, for me, if I try to take myself out of what I know, I felt like so many loose ends were being tied up. So many references here and there. And with all that's happening around it, I felt the story going to a very brutal direction. I thought this might be the end of Tyrion. And this might be just a really really bold statement by George R. R. Martin that you need to do a good job because Baelish is sailing away with Sansa. He's been trying and he hasn't been publicly flexing his muscles or putting people in cells. He's been giving lands given to him. Yeah. You know, he, yeah, he does he kind of ties it with a little bit of a bow to end Tyrion, but I think it's too easy. I don't know. I just felt, it felt, it felt pretty final to me. I was like, shit. Like, <laughs> All of this is happening right now, and it's so complete until we get this final visit of the chapter, and we get told some super excellent stories that really open up the history. I know that we like to mention on this podcast of the world that they live in, and Oberyn, in a little bit less of an epic way than we're used to, says, I will be your champion. I will be <laughs> your champion. Not as your judge, as your champion. Yeah. As you mentioned, just a lot of, of great... Uh, history here uh which Tyrion knows he, he you know yeah. Oberyn had to go through that whole long story and Tyrion was just like I know the tale Oberyn why are we wasting my time here but uh we do know that uh, Oberyn has been frequenting uh Shatayas Shatayas yeah. and uh visiting with Alianya <laughs> so uh, inside joke Santa we're sorry and so and it's it appears Ilaria may have been as well mm. but uh, that that's what leads into his whole story and uh, he refers to Cersei as the golden haired whore uh, and and you know there's all this talk as as was mentioned in, a, in I think in the Jamie chapter about Cersei possibly marrying Oberyn to to bring together these two families that have been at odds for so long, obviously with what it took place uh, many years ago with uh, Oberyn's sister right. um, and, and his niece and nephew, which are mentioned in this chapter. Yes. Uh, but it's very clear from the story uh, and from 
Oberyn's decision at, at the end of this chapter that he wants vengeance. He he wants to make sure that the mountain pays for what he has done. There's mention of Sir Amory Lorch uh, as well, who had a hand in what took place. Uh, but then we also wonder what is the fate going to be of Tywin Lannister because Oberyn basically makes a death threat. Essentially, <laughs> uh, yeah. When he's talking with, with Tyrion here. Oh, he's and, commenting on the man's mortality. <laughs> well, yes. And he even says Valar Morghulis, right? Mm-hmm. All men must die. So perhaps he knows things that uh, we don't. I found his story fascinating, though. I loved the fact that he used history to reference the the trouble that they're going through now. And it certainly makes what's happening here at King's Landing feel a little smaller, doesn't it, guys? It does. When you're, when you're talking about Daron Targaryen mm-hmm. taking over a rebellious Dorne, he sends Lord Lionel Tyrell to essentially, like Oberyn says, ride from place to place in Dorne, keeping things in line, and then you know meets his fate by pulling on a sash over his bed because I guess it was what he did. He took the beds of all the people that he was uh, occupying. Like, oh, you have a really nice bed. I'll use your bed instead. <laughs> and so there's a sash that you pull on, which is very handy if you're the type of person that, you know, solicits takes over, whores. Solicits whores and takes over cities. Um, it, that if you pull on, it rings a little bell somewhere in this, this Dornish country, and a, a whore will be sent up to your room. And he thought to himself, Lionel Tyrell, ah, it's been a long day of capturing... This place, I could use a, a visit. And instead of a visit, he well, he is visited by many scorpions that fall from the uh, the top of his beautiful bed. And he, I assume at that point, that's where he's stung to death. He dies. And all of Dorne, after only a few days, rights the wrong of being seized and captured and, and set to bent the knee. And that's when Oberyn says, if... He found a sash in his bed. He would rather have the scorpions instead of the queen and all of her naked beauty. <laughs> it's a zinger. That's bold. He he just is hating on all the Lannisters, with the exception of Tyrion in, in this chapter. I guess. He does go on to say that he basically has Cersei to thank, though, for this current set of circumstances because mm-hmm. he feels as if he may be the one on trial or he would be the one on trial if if Tyrion uh, wasn't uh, in the predicament he was right now, and that, given what's happened with Joffrey, that by Dornish law, the Iron Throne would go to Marcella because she's older than Tommen. Yeah. This was, this was really fascinating. So cool. And then we know that Marcella um, is engaged to Tristane, so that would, of course, give the Martells a much higher position of power here. And it's interesting to kind of see the the power struggle that's going on between Tyrion and, and Oberyn in this little exchange. It's even another layer to add into it. Yeah. Like this Dornish involvement is just heating up. Cersei is not only getting uh, to Oberyn, so he'll vote against, the, you know, she'll he'll vote in a judgment that she sees fit, which is Tyrion's life being ended. Which is what's happened. She, you know, they're, they're creating this relationship and opening his eyes to the kind of people that they are. And he's using all of this as sort of like evidence to himself. Like, okay, this guy is such a perfect. Like, we're saying how this is interesting and perfect for for Tyrion. Well, it's even better for Oberyn, who's learning all that he wanted to learn. It's all being okay. Yeah, I'm right about what I thought about these people, and now 
I get to defend someone who's innocent, piss off those people, and kill the person that I wanted to kill for a very long time. Yeah. That's kind of the perfect setup for him. Mm-hmm. Not bad. He raises such a great point, though, too, when he says that you know, justice is in short supply this side of the mountains, and and that there was none for Elia, Aegon, or Rhaenys. Why should there be any for you? You know, who? what makes you any different than them? And then he jokes that perhaps Joffrey's real killer was eaten by a bear. <laughs> that seems to happen quite often in King's Landing. Yeah. Oh, wait. <laughs> the bear was at Harrenhal. Now I remember. Yeah. And you know, he's basically saying that, look, you're, you know. I know Emily Lorch didn't. Yeah, exactly. I, I know, okay? I know. I yeah. get Just it. Just like Joffrey's real killer was eaten by a exactly. bear. Exactly. It's like, you can't bullshit me around. So is my family's, yeah. You're going to make me a judge? That's great. Because I'm a prince of Dorne. I get it. I'm visiting. Do I need to tell you about the histories again? And about what <laughs> kind of people are from my country? I know that after years of strife in the olden days, we eventually reached an agreement due to some marriages strategically over time, but we're still Dorn, and I'm still over in Martell, and what you ordered still happened. So it's just, it's interesting now that this is all coming to a head, and the way that he's talking makes what happens later so shocking, and I almost wish I did, actually I do wish I didn't know, because it's it's so full here. We feel that there's a real plan that could be happening with Mar- Marcella and whatever relationship he ends up having with Cersei, if he does or if he doesn't, it would be good for her because that would mean that she has a lot more power for Casterly Rock because she came out of the womb before Jamie. So this sort of Dornish law that could be applied if the right people were on top in the right places is fascinating. And it makes you believe through George's storytelling that there's so much more to this enigmatic character that has come into King's Landing and has taken everyone by a storm. Absolutely. And now he's offering himself to be Tyrion's champion. It's like, all right, we're rubbing our hands together. This is really starting to heat up. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. it's going to get good. <laughs> we hope. But there's... Or really bad. <laughs> or really bad. Thank you for that. <laughs> this is a song of ice and fire. So mm-hmm. we know that uh, there aren't that many happy moments. But how about Tyrion just spitting out the truth to Oberyn about what happened? You know, could that be like a knee knee jerk? Like I'm gonna die. I need to tell somebody. Like might as well because my family hasn't done anything to save me. Is it vengefulness that makes him do it? Is it an overwhelming sixth sense that he needs to be honest, or that that'll be somehow rewarded? You know, what makes him just tell? I think the fact that he was called a liar. And a noseless man. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's been called a liar enough in the past few days. Yeah. For Oberyn, it's not just about who did the actual physical action of murder here. He wants to hold all the people who are complicit in it responsible mm-hmm. for what happened. So it's not just Amory Lorch. It's not just Gregor Clegane. It's also Tywin Lannister, right. who presented the bodies of these three individuals to King Robert. So he he's out for blood and if he can get at the mountain in any way possible you know that he's going to do it step one yep and he's not going to strike softly he's going to strike sound that's his plan at least and that's what we're led to believe this red viper of dorn potentially with poison which he himself references earlier yeah, in this chapter that. Tell your father I'm here. <laughs> there it is. There it is. And stop. Okay. I Not was, as your judge. I was timing that. <laughs> as your champion. It took a little bit longer this this episode to jump in that. So that's it. We've uh, 
this was a this was a you know a big moment to get to in the podcast, finding ourselves in Tyrion's trial and feeling all the bad stuff that was thrown in his direction. Yeah, it's kind of painful, mm-hmm. but it was full of bones. You like that? I like that. You know, I'll break through our barrier of owns by giving the own to the same character for both chapters. Can you guess? Wow. Who okay. This is uh, unprecedented, Eric. Let's see what is you it? got. I feel like we've done this once before. <laughs> we probably have. It's almost uh, been 300 episodes. We've probably done this, yeah. Timmit, son of Timmit. <laughs> <laughs> there was really no question. A lot of own worthiness uh, happens in these chapters, but I won't give it to the point of view chapter characters. And uh, Timmit rates a mention by just randomly vast, vastly different groups of people. The villagers talk about how Timmit uh, has has sort of made a name for himself and the mountain clans um, by returning home after his triumphant war, of course, which he fought yes. for Tyrion. And in the Tyrion chapter, Tyrion's reminiscing and trying to come up with people who he might be able to call, not not as witnesses, but actually as champions. And uh, he thinks of Timmet, son of Timmet, but um, is a little... Uh, has a little bit of grief that that Tim has probably gone back to the to the mountains of the moon. So yeah, I don't know. It's a it's super fun connection between the two. It's too funny not to own. That's good. Oh my god, has Hannah given owns before? You have. I was yeah, like, I wait a minute, is this like the first? Okay, I was like, <laughs> wait a minute. I'm giving my own. Is this a cop out if I give it to a point of view character? Yes. No, it is, it is not. Don't oh, it is because you're biased. You said that. You made that point. <laughs> Everyone's yelling at their iPod phone thing at home and saying do what you want hannah yeah Follow do your what heart. i want for aria i love when she's talking and at the very end um she says are you scared of them she asks. have you lost your belly for fighting she kind of throws it to the hound i kind of like that yeah and then she thinks he's gonna hit her but then he doesn't yeah <laughs> i'm gonna give mine to the hound uh there were a couple of moments but uh i like this one which I don't know what it says about me, but when he says, I hit you with the flat of the axe, you stupid little bitch. If I'd hit you with the blade, there'd be there'd still be chunks of your head floating down the green fork. Yeah. Now shut your bloody mouth. <laughs> um, that, that was a close one for me as well, Micah. It's a tough call not giving it to Sandler Clegane for just like, I'm, I'm thinking about the kind of the kind of person just being, we've all been angry before. Us and everyone listening, you've all been upset. They, he's just blindly just hacking the fuck out of a tree, just, <laughs> just letting it come out of him in the right moment. And I just found that to I, it's still standing out to me. I, I'm seeing Roy McCann, you know, who is who is the hound in my heart, uh, just just bludgeoning a tree with the axe that he that he took care of Ario. It's just funny and beautiful. And I wasn't gonna give my own to, but now that I'm talking about it, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna do that. Also, the village elder. Uh, was a nice and pragmatic man. <laughs> Follow that one up. Yeah, yeah, I've got nothing. <laughs> okay, so from the Tyrion chapter, my own goes to, I think I'm going to have to give it to Oberyn for at the end when he says, men are seldom as they appear. You look so very guilty that I'm convinced of your innocence. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I love that line. It's like Varys had all the ledgers and now I'm now I'm very suspicious. Yeah. yeah. I, I have a f- a couple here just because it's part of the same dialogue uh, and they go to Braun. Uh, <laughs> it's when they're when they're having the conversation about uh trying to get Tyrion to fight on behalf or sorry Tyrion's trying to get Braun to fight on his behalf. Uh and they're talking about 
Lawless and Tyrion says, my bitch sister, everybody's getting called a bitch. <laughs> yeah. My bitch sister has sold you a lame horse. The girl's dim-witted. And Bronn says, if I wanted wits, I'd marry you. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then further down it says, is it two wives you want or two castles? And Bronn says, one of each would serve, but if you want me to kill Gregor Clegane for you, it'd best be a damn big castle. <laughs> so there was some humor in the chapter. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, I also gave my own to Bronn, Micah. So high five there. High five. Nice. I like his. Uh, I also highlighted if I wanted wits, I'd marry you. Thought that was funny. Yeah. King of the castle. King of the castle of his own. <laughs> Hopefully, few. He's he's really moved up in the world, and Tyrion notices it, and he can't do anything about it. Right. And I just, I love, I love this. I don't want to say conclusion because I hope that there's more between them, and I hope that this isn't the last we see of Bronn. I really, I sincerely hope because he's such an interesting character, the way he came in and what he's done, but. This is really then. This is another reason I felt so complete with Tyrion. Almost in a way, it was just like he's saying bye to, to Bronn. Bronn's been made a sir. He's coming in with these supple, supple gloves and these tooled boots and these beautiful clothes and this cloak. And he's marrying Lawless, and he's basically sweet our sweet Lawless. And he's already made plans to take care of uh, his sister Felice. Her sister, what well, I guess will be his sister eventually, and he's gonna, you know, be his own man. And I just, I don't want that to end. But I want to say good, good on you, Bron, for finding a way to live through building your way up in this dangerous place from nothing. Not yeah. only to be knighted, but to you know have options when you're talking to Tyrion rather than listening to every word that he says. So I have to say, not that everything he's done is respectable, but own to Sir Bronn of the Blackwater for moving up in the world as he has. Definitely. Even Tyrion on paper is like, oh, that's a good match, you know, for yeah. one of the Lordling's uh, daughters. Oh, yeah, he's a knight now. It's pretty rough. And too bad yep. for Pod. He was just trying to do his job and get Bronn in there on time, okay? Ah. He was so stressed out. He was. <laughs> Pod was so nervous. It's like he's like Pod can barely make it down to the kitchens to get me cheese if I need it. <laughs> <laughs> Why am I surprised? In addition to our owns, we did get a number sent in by you, the listeners. By you. By you. We heard from our good friend Brienne of Tarth at Beauty Brienne over on Twitter. She says, "My Arya own goes to Arya." Ah, rule breaker. See, Hannah. No, see, you hey, it's it's real. I knew that about Brienne. It never was a thing, just so everyone knows. <laughs> <laughs> and it is for reminding us that under all her homicidal, righteous rage, she's just a girl who wants her mother. Aww. Yeah, I like that. And Brienne, sounding a lot like Hannah tonight, added, for Tyrion, my own goes to Oberyn for preferring the sting of a hundred scorpions <laughs> over a naked Cersei. Hashtag picky man. That is picky. Are you uh, Brienne of Tarth on Twitter? Hannah. I didn't. I didn't want to say anything. But. <laughs> no, I'm. A, I'm in good company. If, if we're, uh, you, we're you the are. Same yeah, you definitely are. It is worth pointing out, though, that uh, Alaria may not be in agreement with Oberyn for that particular. Oh own. yeah, it is. Mm-hmm. At Johnny Bravo one, which is let me let me properly read that Johnny Bravo one. Pycelle owned Tyrion when he said Tyrion used all the poison to kill the noblest boy the gods had ever laid eyes on. <laughs> <laughs> the noblest. Laying it on thick, Pycelle. Nobody likes you. Vivid Verdandi says, Arya goes to Nemira for finding that body. I hope to the gods that Nemira and Arya reunite someday. Same. It would be beautiful. 
Vivid Verdandi also tweeted in her Tyrion own, which goes to Oberyn Nymeros Martell, for going wherever he damn well pleases. He does. Hashtag, hey, he's a prince. He does, he does. yeah. Does. No, he really does. He is a prince. Oh, sad hashtag. R.I.P. Hashtag, no, why? Hashtag, <laughs> tell your father I'm here. <laughs> is that why Hannah left that one? You needed to read that one. He was just at one point, like, Tyrion's like, hey, uh, how did you get past the guards? And he was like, I told him princess can just go past guards. And it worked. He's <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, I guess that's true. Princess can. So nicely done. Aferva on Twitter said, I've not read the chapter yet from... But from what I recall, Oberyn owned not only Tyrion with his proposal, but also the readers. Yes, he did. Two parts wry, completing my thought from earlier. The village elder owned the hound, which makes no fucking sense. (laughs) (laughs) I agree. Yeah, nobody owns that. I don't understand how that happened. I'm just proud of Sandor for not hacking his head off after that, or at least punching him. Over on Facebook, we heard from Christina V. Klein, who says, To the wolf and the hound. She has wolf dreams. He teaches her useful things like how to properly kill a man. She becomes no one. He wants to disappear into a flask of <laughs> ale. What a match. And of course, to Oberyn for his burn on Cersei. But the whore I referred to is your sister. And for the goose flesh I got when he says, as your champion. Dun, dun, dun. Did you guys read it in Micah's voice? I did. I did too. Jeff Tuttle says uh, for Arya, the direwolf dream sequence toes the line of reality, so much so that Arya knows her mother is dead when she wakes. Very mysterious. And for Tyrion, the dialogue can't get much better than the conversations between these two characters. I'm sure George R. R. Martin didn't want this to end. I sure did. And then Reese, my own for the Arya chapter goes to River Run, that unreachable, unobtainable goal. After two mm. books, Arya still can't get there. <laughs> Aww. Which is very sad. Uh, And then my own for the Tyrion chapter goes to Oberyn for championing Tyrion and for the line, you look so very guilty that I'm convinced of your innocence. Same. A secondary own goes to the ending of an era, Tyrion Braun bromance. It's so sad. Then it's over. It is kind of sad. I don't want it to be over. I don't, don't read that hashtag. I don't accept it. <laughs> I also don't agree with that hashtag. So. Yeah, so yeah, I know. <laughs> we're skipping that. He's looking out for his own self-interest. But such great gloves. Beautiful. Supple. Yes. Supple. Gloves. Very, supple very gloves. ornate. Do you see the supple email, Micah? It's tooled in perfection. From Monique. Yeah, Monique's in it to her. She says, for Aria, well, first she says, hi, Goo. Hello. Exclamation point. Hi. Uh, hi. Aria. Own to the wolf, who is probably Nymeria, for rescuing the body that was probably Catelyn from the river. <laughs> too late for CPR? <laughs> it, it appeared a little too late, yeah. Maybe. Strike and wouldn't think so. Own to Maester Pycelle for calling Joffrey, quote, the noblest child the gods ever put on this good earth. <laughs> that was a bit of Robert. <laughs> it just keeps getting better. Excellent judge of character. Oh, the shade thrown in his direction. So those are the uh, various ways that uh, you can get in touch with the show and send in your owns or just send in anything you like to. Uh, you can tweet at us at Game of Owns on Twitter, scroll upon our Facebook wall at facebook.com slash Game of Owns, or shoot us an email at contact at Game of Thank you for sending all that in, everyone. Some of, some of that stuff is kind of funny, right? We got funny listeners. We got funny listeners for such, you know, a pair of such heavy chapters where not a lot can be, not a lot of hope in the desolation, but you guys came through with it. Awesome. Well, you can always get a hold of us via our Twitter, our Facebook, or our email, but there's a very special, unique way, less common, 
in which you can you can find us. And that is in person, to be in person in New York City in just a couple weeks, guys. It's coming ever nearer to reality, to actually happening. Of course, I'm talking about A Night of Ice and Fire taking place at the Hard Rock Times Square, October 9th in New York City as part of New York Comic Con. We're going to be there. We're going to be podcasting. We're going to be raving. We're going to be on the dance floor showing you all of our moves. You can dance with us. How about that? You can definitely dance with Eric. So. <laughs> yeah, let's, let's not open this to everybody. <laughs> also, I've heard through the grapevine, be it said in a fond rumor that Micah is an incredible dancer. Oh, if the is. poster isn't any indication. Yeah. He's going to actually wear that outfit. You can see the poster and all the information at gameofowns.com slash tickets. We are, what's the word, guys? Unreasonably excited to see all of this happen, right? Mm-hmm. At camp, yeah, it, absolutely. It's going to be a blast. This October is not only holding Halloween and the release of the new Cormoran Strike book, but it's also holding this event in New York, and it's going to be seriously unreasonable. A ton of you have already gotten tickets, and I recommend if you're mulling it over in your mind to do it sooner rather than later, because a place like this does have a capacity. And uh, like our last, you remember our live show in Chicago where the people just weren't allowed in at some point because there were too many people in the building. I don't want to see that happen again here. So, you know, fix things up in your mind. Get prepared. One thing I know that uh, we're going to be doing while we're in New York is capturing plenty of content uh, for our Patreon, which can be found at patreon.com slash goo. And uh, speaking of that, our uh, ninth installment our ninth chapter uh is available right now uh if you are one of our bannermen over on patreon and uh actually this weekend we're going to be uh changing things up uh, a little bit over there details to follow but uh, i think we think it's going to be uh something that all of you listeners uh are, are going to enjoy we've also just finished the hedge night i actually had the the blessing of being the final reader on the hedge nice. night. So that was, that was a lot of fun. So for our Benjamin that do the read along stuff with us, the hedge night is done. And uh, I guess like you were saying, Micah, there's, there's new stuff that we're going to be implementing this weekend. And if you're interested in learning about all of that and sort of getting in uh, at the top, just do it. Just follow your heart. You know, it's true. Yeah. It's totally up to you, um, and, but you know one thing to mention is that it does help make things happen, like what we're doing in New York um, in just a couple of weeks. So uh, we do appreciate all of you out there, obviously, who are already supporting the show, and you know, obviously appreciate those of you who are willing to do so in the future as well. If you are a recent uh, subscriber to us uh, through iTunes, or if you have not yet subscribed uh, to us on iTunes, it's free. But I have a feeling that some of you may be new listeners, and I have a feeling that some of you would definitely like to serve other new listeners, and the way you do that is by writing a review. Um, reviews are a great way for people who are looking for podcasts to find us, and uh, definitely don't forget to also rate us five stars. Nothing less is acceptable, but tell us what you think of the show. We like to read our reviews. Um, we will be reading a few more uh, on our next episode. It's just uh, another way to kind of share the love. Jamie and Sansa are ah, up next. Just about to look that up. You beat me. Did it like 20 minutes ago. Ah. We look forward to uh, you sending in your owns. Uh, it's not been that long since we've uh, had a Jamie chapter, but uh, interesting to see his thoughts uh, following Tyrion's trial. And then, of course, with Sansa, 
Uh, we last left her on a boat. So who knows what kind of things she's going to be getting up to with uh, Peter Baelish so close by. Swab in the deck, matey. Arr. Stay with us. We'll need you for the trial. Hey, Zach. Yeah. I will be your champion. <laughs> <laughs>